The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. I'm your host, Lou Blaustein, and this is episode 22, and we welcome in Sean McCabe, who has one of the coolest job titles I've ever heard of, and that is Climate Justice Officer at Bohemians FC of the Irish Premier Division. And I've never heard of such a job title, and I look forward to talking with Sean about what that entails, how he got there, and what the green sports movement needs to do to make real progress on climate justice. Sean, welcome to Green Sports Pod. Great to be here, Lou. Delighted we could make this happen. Me as well. So let's get into it. So the job title is so exciting to me in itself, and I want to get to that. But how did you come to this place? How did you get involved in climate action and fusing it with sports? And I'll let you take it from there, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, I guess there's probably an abridged version, but there's a long version. Climate justice has been an issue I've been working on for over a decade. And for the first few years, I didn't even realize it was climate justice that I was working on. I I spent time in Calcutta in India working with communities living in extreme poverty and, and spent some time in Sierra Leone in West Africa working with the Environmental Protection Agency there on, on issues that... Uh, related to how communities and their environments interacted and the challenges in ensuring a safe and healthy environment for those communities. And so that was, I suppose, my first exposure to some of those really stark issues of environmental and climate injustice, where communities that are energy poor, that have no benefit from the fossil fuel exploitation that has driven development in most of the developed world, those communities face some of the most stark challenges, both in terms of poverty, but also in terms of the impacts of climate change. So their emissions are extremely low relative to the high emissions countries, like where I'm sitting in the US or in the UK or Ireland or etc. And yet they're getting harmed. Exactly. They're getting hit hardest by the severe storms, by the flooding, by the droughts. And also then because they haven't benefited from fossil fuel-based development, they don't have the resilience. You know, They don't have the recovery mechanisms that maybe some countries in Europe or the US would when a disaster strikes. Or they don't have the technologies to minimize the impacts of the extreme weather. There's elements of that. There's a lack of insurance coverage, for example. You know, one of the starkest examples for me, before I began that journey in Calcutta, I actually worked in Bermuda in a reinsurance industry. And I remember it was shortly after the 0405 hurricane seasons that obviously devastated Florida and, and the panhandle, there was this level of resilience there thanks to the wealth of the United States and the federal government and the ability to roll in. And uh, although that, those responses have been criticized and they brought out issues of, of inequality within the US, there was that Because 05 was, was Superstorm Katrina. Yeah, exactly. In New Orleans and, and in Byron's. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously that had huge 
dimensions of race and other issues in terms of the response and who suffered. But the following year, a hurricane blew into the Bay of Bengal, a hurricane called Sidar, which had very similar dimensions to Katrina. But in Bangladesh, where it made landfall, the deaths were orders of magnitude higher than occurred in in the US. And there was no insured loss, as the industry would say. So nobody had any coverage, if you think about it that way. And for me, sitting in an office in Bermuda, that, that was a very stark injustice. There's the layers of injustice in terms of the response to Katrina, but there's also layers of injustice then globally in terms of the capability of the US to respond versus the capability of Bangladesh to respond. So that was the beginning. That was the genesis point of this journey. And that brought me through. I I ended up being fortunate enough to work with Mary Robinson, the former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and former, the first ever female president of Ireland. Mary set up a, a climate justice foundation and we worked on getting climate justice provisions into the Sustainable Development Goals and into the Paris Agreement, human rights provisions and provisions around climate. And what was your role in that? We were looking to both provide the evidence base. So if you think about these agreements are are negotiated by governments and those doing the negotiations have to be convinced that there is reason to, for example, include provisions on human rights in the Paris Agreement, that human rights would make the Paris Agreement a more robust agreement, would make it better in terms of implementation, would make the climate action faster and fairer. And so we built the evidence base for that. And then we engaged with those diplomats and negotiators to persuade them to include a provision. And working with a broad constituency around the world of experts and civil society, we were able to succeed in that, which was great. What was it like actually talking to them and trying to convince them? I'm glad that you were able to succeed. What was their reaction? That to me is fascinating. Well, a lot of people wouldn't understand why you were talking to them about human rights at that time. We've gotten better at understanding climate justice now, I think, although it's still very, very new to some people. But at that point, the climate crisis was about melting ice caps and polar bears. It wasn't about people. And certainly the idea that climate action could be bad for people wasn't really on the radar of a lot of climate experts. If you think about it, There's a great desire to see change and to rush and to make that change happen because we know how huge the threat of climate change is. But if the solutions marginalize people or walk on people's rights, it'll have two outcomes. First of all, it's a cruel and inhumane thing to do to people. But secondly, it will erode any public support there is for climate action. And then the requirement for climate action to be enduring if it is to be successful, that suddenly becomes gets cast into doubt. Was that a bit of like the yellow vest? Is that an example of what you're talking about? Precisely. So maybe you could share a little bit about that with our audience. Yeah, Noel, I think initially the yellow vest movement, very initially it it morphed, but it was a response to a regressive carbon tax um, that, you know, fundamentally caused hardship for groups that were able to organize and push back against what was ostensibly climate action. So that's one example of where you could really undermine progress. But there's plenty others in terms, if you go look globally, we've seen efforts to install hydroelectric power, remove indigenous communities from their land without free prior and informed consent. We've seen how efforts to convert crops to biofuel in the US inadvertently causes a, a spike in 
commodity prices that resulted in hunger in certain parts of Africa. So we live in a very interconnected world and we're engaging with very complex systems. And unless we put people at the center and make sure that people are respected and protected, their rights are respected and protected, as we take the climate action that we need to take, we run the risk of inadvertently trampling on those rights. And so that's why policy prescriptions, whether local, regional, federal, global, you have to take into account human rights. And even doing that, it's not easy. No, it's very, very difficult. It's very, very difficult. First of all, you just need the fundamental awareness that what you're doing intersects with people's rights and intersects with people's dignity. That's a very important understanding for policymakers, but also it's very important for advocates of climate action, right? We're, because Mary Robinson used to say, still probably does, just when, I mean, when I worked with her, that a time would come when the world would wake up to the reality of the climate crisis and that then there would be real pressure as we're buffeted by the impacts and by the public demand to just act to save ourselves. And that if that action wasn't based in enlightened self-interest and solidarity with those all around the world, we would trample upon the rights of those most vulnerable and ultimately end up preventing the outcome that we wanted. Because unless everyone can make this transition, nobody's going to make this transition. And that's a key fundamental understanding that we need. And it's interesting when we come to sport, you know, typically we like to compete, but there's no such thing as survival of the fittest when it comes to the climate crisis. Right. There's no win-lose. There's no win-lose. There's no winners and losers. There's either we all win or we all lose. And that has to be fundamental in the design of this response. And so how did you go from kind of macro policy at the global level from Paris Agreement to the SDGs to working with Mary Robinson into the world of sport? And where did that come from for you? Well, fundamentally, you've made the connection there yourself. It was about 2018, and I realized everything that we could do as a small group of people working out of Dublin, we had done. We started to wrap up the foundation because now it became about implementation of the Paris Agreement and implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals. And that, as you rightly recognize, happens at the local level certainly happens at the national level, but even more so at the local level. It's at that interface with community. So I actually ran in a couple of elections unsuccessfully here in Ireland for council and for the national parliament. What was that like? What was it like putting yourself out for for vote and campaigning? And what was your platform? Platform was climate justice. And it was a very interesting experience. Uh, you know, I'm very grateful for it. It's challenging. Initially, I ran as an independent, which is not necessarily a, a concept that might be too familiar to an American audience, but it was unaffiliated to any party, um, community candidate. We always have you know, third-party candidates here and there. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I had no party affiliation the first time. I just ran for the community. And we did quite well, but we didn't do well enough. And then we would have a different electoral system. It's proportional representation. So... Um, a number is not first past the post. And so we came quite close. We came, There were six seats and I came seventh. And then the second time out for the part, national parliament, again, I ran for the um, Green Party here. And yeah, that was a really exciting experience. Both times we were able to mobilize 
quite a large energetic young campaign and it was a lot of fun and despite not being successful really showed or exposed me to ways of thinking that and audiences that that resonated with the message of climate justice when you're bringing climate justice to the public via an electoral campaign while you didn't win you got some traction how did that then where did sport come in after that well, while I was running, I needed to support myself. So I, I worked with a think tank in, in, in Dublin and dedicated myself to a piece of research that ended up being called the People's Transition. And it was about really trying to distill down everything I'd come to understand about climate action and how to take it in a fair and inclusive way, participatory way, and define a model that could do that. And, and not only do that, but use climate action as a means for local development. So rather than climate action be something that gets done onto communities, making it something that's done with and for and by communities in such a way that they not only benefit, but they actually own the assets, collectively own the assets of transformation, whether that's wind farms or solar farms or retrofitting companies, but that these things become embedded in community in a community wealth building model, which was pioneered by groups like democracy collaborative in Cincinnati and other places. And so this was a large body of work that I completed in 2020. And around the time of completion, I, I went and spoke to Bohemian Football Club. Bohemians is a bit unique in the world of football in that we're a member-owned football club. We're not owned by any individual. It's owned by the fans. So it's like the Green Bay Packers in the NFL. Yeah, I believe the Green Bay Packers have a similar model. And so I met with the COO, Daniel Lambert, and explained the research that was going on. I wanted to see if Bohemians would be interested in becoming what's called in that model an anchor institution, a community wealth builder, like an organization that's committed to place, committed to its community, and willing to use how it procures goods and services, and particularly goods and services related to climate action, in such a way that you build and develop the local community. And so when I explained it to Daniel, he just suggested I take up the role and asked what the title should be. And that's where the Climate Justice Officer title came from. So it's not like you were looking to work in football before that. Well, to be honest, I'm, I'm mad about football. If I had had any sort of foresight, I should have realized that I could have been doing this much sooner. <laughs> it, once, once the penny dropped, it was, you know, we, we announced the position the next day. Daniel took a photo on his phone that day. It was the middle of the pandemic in the middle of lockdown and I hadn't shaved or combed my hair in about a week. So I looked like a, a wild man. But that photo went pretty viral. The post went viral. There was a huge reaction, both positive and, and negative, but a massive reaction. And, and within, within a few weeks, we were on CNN, which was for a small club. We're a big club in Ireland, but a, a small league in the global scheme of things. It was pretty exciting to see an initiative like this picked up by CNN. That is so fantastic. Were you before this a Bohemian supporter? I was a member of the club, yeah. So this is, you're living it. Because if I understand, what you're trying to do here is make the businesses in a community, the bigger businesses especially, and the ones that have a high profile like a, a soccer team or a football team, to act environmentally and socially sustainably as possible. And in so doing provide economic opportunity for the community itself. Yeah, it's about taking an intentional approach to how you procure fundamentally. So 
is there a way where an organization like a hospital or a university or, or a similar entity can procure anything it needs from the immediate community? And in doing so, can it set up the types of cooperatives or mutuals within the community that pay a living wage and, and make sure that they're engaging with workers in a, in a fair and inclusive way, but also channel any profits that those organizations are making back into the community, giving opportunities to people who might not otherwise get them. And, you know, it's been pioneered, like I say, in a few communities. Uh, one is Preston in the United Kingdom, and it's seen remarkable success in terms of Preston was a post-industrial city. And in recent years, it's seen fortunes improve as much of the rest of the UK has struggled. So it's really about what our model was talking about doing was looking at climate action as the greatest stimulus package this world has ever seen and asking how do we make sure that that goes to the people who need it most? Because right now we're building a whole new economy, a new climate economy. And currently that economy is being dominated by the same actors that dominate the economy that we have today. And that economy that we have today is marked by radical inequality, both within our countries and globally. And whilst we have managed to survive with that level of inequality, what I would argue is that the nature of the climate crisis is such that unless everyone has access to the solutions, nobody gets through it. And so inequality is going to be the detriment of successful climate action. So this model attempts to address inequality through the delivery of climate action itself. So if you could give some examples from your work with Bohemians in your role as climate justice officer, what kind of programs, what kind of initiatives have you guys been putting forth or are about to? Because it's I know it's, you're only two years-ish into it. Yeah, we're coming up on, we'll, you know, it'll be two years in January. And, you know, it's a voluntary role. That's another thing that's important to state. Although things are moving at such a rate now that we're looking at maybe creating it into more of a permanent role, and I might leave the work that I've been doing within the UN system. But basically, what we've done to date is try to sensitize fans, bring fans along with us. We've had some funding for a large cultural project, which is about creating a walkway through Dublin City that interweaves the stories of our past and our history and songs and poems from our history but also provides people with empowering information about how they can access grants and other services in order to retrofit their homes or look to improve their own climate action. Not in a way that's talking about behavioral change or individualizing people, but giving them opportunities to join local sustainable energy communities and find tribes in which they can take climate action collectively. But the most exciting thing that we're about to embark on, and, and we've just received seed funding for it, is we're going to set up a climate cooperative under the club. Initially, that climate cooperative is going to exist to do some basic green skills training for community members, including particularly at-risk community members, so young people in terms of diversion away from harmful ways of life, but also within a local prison. Our home ground is situated in very close proximity to one of Ireland's biggest prisons, Mount Joy. And so we'll be working with the prisoners in there to bring them skills like retrofitting and bicycle maintenance and 
solar panel photovoltaic installation so that hopefully when they emerge from prison, they can move into roles potentially provided by the cooperative. So this is a really exciting departure. And our, our aim now is to make sure that we do it. We realize the full potential of this cooperative. Because if we do, and the really interesting thing about sport is if we can prove this as, as a model that works, we could proliferate it across Europe and the world through football very rapidly. So everything we do on this will be open source. We'll be sharing everything we learn on the way. And hopefully that will provide the ability for other clubs to do similar. And how have the Bohemians supporters reacted to this strong commitment towards climate justice and towards building the local community? How have top management reacted to what's gone on so far? And then where do the players fit in? Well, might start with the last piece first. One of the very helpful things in terms of this work was that last season, our top scorer and the top scorer in the league was Georgie Kelly, who was studying a master's in climate finance. So he became a fantastic spokesperson for the initiative. His performances on the field really helped to deflect attention away from me because I think, to be fair, initially, the reaction, I would say, was very mixed. We had a lot of people who were happy to see the club take a progressive step, but then there were many people, and in another life, I would have been one who saw the football club was having nothing to do with climate action and should really just be focusing on matters on the pitch. So that was interesting. I think over the year, we've definitely not been preaching at people. I think that's been appreciated. I think fans have seen that the efforts are, are about trying to empower people, not to diminish or preach. And then on top of that, like it's been evident that we're not taking from the footballing side. There's no, you know, like I say, it's a voluntary role. There's no negative downside. We're not trying to take resources away from from the team. So I think all of those things and communicating that has helped. Could this actually be a way to benefit the club financially by appealing to potential partners or sponsors who are in league with what you all are doing. Yeah, I think that is the transformative step. I would love to be able to point to a player on the pitch or an improvement to the facilities that we have and say that this is thanks to the work we're doing on climate action. If that happens, I think that becomes transformative in terms of how fans view what we're doing. So I'm hoping that we will have, in the not-too-distant future, partners willing to support the playing side because they want to be associated with what we're doing on the climate side. How are your counterparts at the club who are responsible for selling partnerships, sponsorships, how are they seeing this from an opportunity point of view? Well, I think this is not the first move towards social value work that the club has done. In fact, the club went through some challenging times at the turn of the last decade we were nearly bankrupt. And when that situation was diverted, there was an intentional shift to being a more purpose-driven, community-focused entity, away from focusing on just spending everything in order to 
have success on the pitch, but also seeing the club as having an important role within its community. And that has, in fact, resulted in massively increased revenues. And, you know, recently we've had a sponsor come on board to be part of our, not to have a name on the jersey, but to be part of a a social value partnership. So I think our genuine commitment to these issues at Bohemians is being seen and sponsors are responding to that. But it is because it's authentic. And, you know, there's no effort here to to dazzle with shiny brochures or anything. We're, we're trying hard. I know for a fact that with the climate work, we'll fail in, in areas and it will be difficult. And But we won't at any point attempt to greenwash what we're doing. And we certainly won't preach or it'll be about sharing and empowering, not just our fans, but also other organizations and clubs so that we can all make this transition. And that's the classic lead by example. And I think that's the only way that something like this could work. How are you guys doing on the pitch this season so far? It's been a difficult season. Our season is a, it's a summer league. So the last game of the season is tomorrow, tomorrow night against Sligo Rovers. It's been, yeah, it's been a challenging season. We've had a change of manager and we've probably underperformed against, well, we have underperformed against expectations, but it comes on the back of numerous seasons of overperforming versus the resources that we had available to us. So I think it's as challenging as it has been. The club has never been in a healthier state financially. And I think I think there's promise for the future. And just like in the climate, the climate fight is definitely a long game. And, you know, so there's a metaphor in there for Bohemians might have a rough season, but overall the trajectory is up. In our last section here, Let's widen the lens a little bit beyond what your work is at Bohemians. And this is being recorded at the beginning of November. I saw Sean at the fantastic Sport Positive Summit in London back about a month ago. And so there you're in and amongst the green sports world writ large. And if I granted you kind of commissioner of sports and you could do one or two things things that would really advance how the sports world is leading on climate. You know, I gave you that scepter and you had that power. What would it be? Well, it would be twofold. One, I think it would be to lessen, not stop doing the work, but lessen the the speaking about trying to achieve zero emissions. That should be par for the course for every organization or entity in the world right now. And the timeframes, like talking about net zero by 2050 is by all the science and insanity. That's signing a a death warrant right there for all of us. So like we would need to be much more ambitious and I would be much quieter about doing it. Just go about that business and do it. Where sport really has a differentiating advantage to many other areas of or sectors in the world is its ability to communicate with and empower fans, particularly in working class communities all over the world. And that should be the focus, is how do we devise, like every sporting entity in the world only exists because of its fans. And football clubs and all sports organizations owe their fans everything. And the climate crisis is the biggest threat facing humanity today. We have to totally reimagine 
we haven't done the imagining work, I think, and this is a, this could be a separate podcast, but we haven't really It's done... also the biggest opportunity facing humanity today. The biggest. It is certainly if if we can consider it in the right way. But we have to imagine what that future looks like. Exactly. It doesn't look like it doesn't look like today with a little bit green or like business as usual with a bit of green on the side. We have to reimagine how our societies are structured, how our economies function. Like that's where the real innovation is. We talk a lot about innovation in terms of technological innovation. But actually, the innovation is creating fairer societies, creating more equal societies, creating economies that function for people. And the sports world can be a forerunner in that by providing their fans and their communities with the means to empower themselves in this transition. And that would be a genuinely just transition, a fair transition. That would be advancing climate justice, but it would also be advancing social justice. It'd be advancing human rights. It'd be advancing gender equality. It's, it's these, these are issues that, you know, we need to be creating a future that's fair for all, that's inclusive for all. And all of these things, whilst they might seem as tangential both to sport and climate action often, they're actually fundamental and central because really all sports should exist to make people's lives better. And sports metaphorically and actually, in some examples, exist in that way. What I'm trying to say is, in the United States, the biggest sports league by far and away is the National Football League. And it is certainly not, aside from the Green Bay Packers, it is certainly not run by the people. It's run by uber-wealthy people. However, with that being the case, there's also the phenomenon that they are the league that pioneered sharing of revenue equally from television money, which is what grew the league over the last 60 years to the behemoth that it is now. And it took either forethought or just luck and grace by the then New York Giants owner, Wellington Mara, who basically agreed, even though New York is by far the biggest market, to take the same money that Green Bay, which is 200,000 people, would take from the television share. And they grew the pie equally. And now it is this, I used the word just before, behemoth. And, you know, people go, oh, that's socialism. And I'm like, I know, but you watch. <laughs> you yeah. watch. You put cheese on your head. Yep. No, completely. And and I think whatever you want to call it, like there's all sorts of ideologies across which climate action has to be brought out. Like whether we like it or not, we're in a space of competing ideology when it comes to how climate action gets rolled out. What you're describing in terms of a bunch of owners in a league recognizing that by pooling their resources, they all improve their lot together, is a very strong metaphor for climate action itself. Like, there is nobody making it out of this alive on their own, on a solo run. It's about everybody having the opportunity to take part. That's a good metaphor for sport, and it's a good metaphor for climate action. And so, unless we recognize our interdependence in this, unless we recognize that it requires an unprecedented level of solidarity across class, across nationalities, across race. Like, we will fail. And sport is a unifier. Sport is merit-based. And football in particular is a sport of the working class all around the world. And so if we can do sincere climate action in this space that empowers people and gives people opportunity, economic opportunity, and social opportunity, 
then we'll get the environmental piece nailed on very quickly. And maybe, who knows, at a speed that's necessary to give our children and grandchildren a safe future. Amen. Well said. I have so enjoyed this conversation, Sean, and we could talk, we could do another podcast, and maybe someday we will. But I thank you for what you're doing, for your insights, for sharing them with our listeners, and just thank you for being a part of this today. No, delighted, Lou. It's a real pleasure. And sure, we might catch you over to Dublin sometime. That would be awesome, Sean. Thank you so much for the invitation, and thanks again for being our guest on Green Sports Pod. And one more thank you. That goes to our listeners for your continued support. We will be back in touch in the near future and see you again next time on Green Sports Pod. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.